Hello and welcome to this episode of Irreligiosity 2.0, the one true podcast and the only podcast to invade enemy-occupied territory in the form of a human. <laughs> right. This is my favorite book now in the world. You love mere Christianity? Has it converted you? It It is going to. I cannot get away from C.S. Lewis's analogies beating me in the face anymore. He is a big fan of analogies, isn't he? He loves it. He loves it. You know, whereas... Whereas the last book we reviewed was like someone beating the flatulence out of you with a wiffle ball bat. This one is like your dearest friend from Jesus Camp just sitting down and talking to you endlessly and not shutting up. About stupid shit and like nearly every other page you're like, what does that have to do with that? Uh, and say like just God uh, loves you just like a fucking greenhouse is bright because the sun shines on it. You see? Right. A greenhouse does not emanate brightness. It just reflects the sun. So, Jesus. Therefore, Jesus. Oh, God. Um, all right. Um, let's briefly get into... Let's do a Dr. Chuck's medical corner, unless you have another chuck dope Oh, I don't. <laughs> but I can come up with something. I don't. Yes, I don't have a matadote either. Uh, There's one time I kicked you in the face. There's that one. Yes. Well, that's probably many times. To narrow that down. But it was only one time where your tooth went through your lip because I kicked you in the face. Oh, that's right. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. The normal pre-tournament non-contact sparring. That's right. Do do people know you have a black belt in taekwondo? Well, they do now. They do now. That was a secret. That's right. Oh, sorry. Chuck was helping me prepare for a taekwondo tournament. So I naturally kicked you in the face. Of course. It was a non-contact tournament, but uh, you know, as in all non-contact tournaments, you kick me so hard, <laughs> I push my fucking canine tooth through my lip. <laughs> hey, somebody once told me that what you do in those non-contact tournaments, you get a little contact in to make them respect you. Then you <laughs> take the rest of the match. So you were just practicing that beforehand. Exactly. Nice. Very nice. Hey, um, let's talk about male circumcision. Because uh, every time you hear, you remember our, our little feminist rant a couple episodes ago? Yes, I remember that. So I got a lot of feedback, and, you know, always they can't help themselves. They're always talking about male circumcision. <laughs> well, these feminists never talk about male circumcision. <laughs> so fuck them. <laughs> Why don't those feminists aren't concerned with male issues? <laughs> oh God! Um, so here we let's talk about male circumcision, Matt. Just to piss off all the feminists. I'm already squirming in my seat. <laughs> Are you circumcised? I have been circumcised. Me too. Apparently, the uh, uh, rate varies across the region in the United States that you're in, and varies wildly if you're outside of the United States. But inside the United States, I think the highest is the Midwest, uh, which uh, may be nearly 70 to 80% circumcised. The lowest, I think, is the... Uh, Northeast. Western states. Oh. At a mere 30% circumcised. Northeast is 67%. And the southern states, which you'd think would be the highest, are only 61% circumcised. What about the... Do we get any... Uh, we got that for the world at large? It varies wildly, um, uh, according to region, um, from 
anywhere from less than 5% to over 90%, depending on where you are. I'm guessing that second one is Israel. <laughs> yes, the sons of Abraham. I'm of two minds about circumcision. I'm already circumcised. So. Yes. Yes. Now, you have a daughter but not a son. Would you circumcise your son? Uh, you know, I would have – before – these conversations started. I I think I would have. That was because uh, that would that might have been a while ago for me, but um, just because I've never thought about it before. I did. Not only did I deliver both of my children, but I circumcised my son. Now thinking about it at the time afterwards, I thought, oh shit, I probably shouldn't have done that. What if I fucked up and scarred that kid for life? Right. What do I sue myself? Um, yes. <laughs> that way you can take everything you have. Uh, Don't leave that guy one damn penny. Yeah, that was, um, let's see, third year medical school, I think. Um, Yeah, had I to do it over again, I I would not have circumcised. Um, Although, uh, reading about this, so I I was trained to circumcise. I probably, I think you had to do 10 or 15 of them. Uh, Funny story, Matt, at the end of my Wait, 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 wait. You had to do, you had to, you had to? Yes, it's a family practice talk, yes. Ooh. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was part of my training. Um, at the uh, end of my OB-GYN rotation for medical school, we're all getting ready to leave after grand rounds, and uh, the chief resident says, hey, we got a baby who you know the parents want to circumcise. Anyone want to help out? And, you know, no one answers. <laughs> I'm, I'm exhausted. <laughs> You, oh, I was going to say, you stood up. <laughs> I am exhausted. Fuck that. I'm not going to do any more work. I'm going home. And so she says, that's all right. I'll do it myself. I just love whacking penises. <laughs> <laughs> so, you guys are too tired to appreciate that joke. Uh, yes, I, tra- I trained in it. I did probably 10 or 15 of them. I can't remember. We When we did it, uh, it we didn't do any anesthetic. That was kind of par for the course at that time. Now I think that you do a little, like, penile nerve block. You'll do a little injection at the base of the penis to numb it all up. But again, you know, that's painful as opposed to, you know, taking off the foreskin, which is painful too. So the the kids uh, seem, the baby seemed to be more distressed at being restrained on the papoose board than uh, the actual cutting of the foreskin. I don't want to get gross here, but uh, how exactly do you do a circumcision? Well, there are a couple of methods. The one I trained on was um, the bell. So you put this tiny little plastic bell on top of the glands of the penis, and you roll the foreskin up. Then you tie a little string around uh, the base of that bell. It's got a little plastic groove, and you, with a little scalpel, you incise the foreskin all the way around it. And you, then you leave the bell on, and it eventually falls off three days later. So... Because it's it's kind of like a hood, so you ha- you have to like pierce through the skin on both sides, right? Like the yeah. outer inside. Uh, yeah, on this little bell, you had a little plastic groove both for the string and for the scalpel. So the scalpel uh, ran over the string, and so you just essentially cut away the foreskin in a little circle. And what do they do with the foreskin? Do they eat put it, it in a, like a? We <laughs> eat it. <laughs> Very yep. tasty. Very tasty. Uh, it's a little like Tabasco pie. sauce. <laughs> yes. uh, you'd throw it away. Throw it away. You don't give it in a jar. Give it to him. Here you go. Kind of like a Dalton. <laughs> <or something. laughs> 
Yes, I have little jars of all the foreskins. Like fucking David, I like got like a thousand foreskins in my basement. You could turn that in for a bounty somewhere. <laughs> so, you know, I hadn't, <clears throat> I obviously haven't done any circumcisions since uh, graduating from residency. I have no interest in it. Um, so I haven't really looked it up. People ask me about it. The, the last thing I'd heard before I looked it up for the podcast was that, uh, you know, it's kind of, uh, <clears throat> it had risk, it had benefits, but there, there's no real reason to recommend the uh, procedure. So I was surprised to learn that um, in 2012, the American Academy of, of Pediatrics released a statement that says the risks are outweighed by the benefits. So the benefits outweigh the risk. And and so that they kind of strongly came out and said that uh, the circumcision should be available uh, for people who want it because the benefits outweigh the risk. You, you're saying they came out in favor of circumcision? They came out in favor of circumcision, yes. What are the benefits? Let's talk about the potential benefits of circumcision. Okay. Number one, it does reduce urinary tract infections in males. Now, uh, urinary tract infection in males is uncommon at any age. A lot more common in females um, because the distance from the outside to the inside is a lot shorter than males. Um, so you have a low risk of urinary tract infection in males to begin with, and there is a slight reduction with circumcised males as opposed to uncircumcised. The distance is shorter in males than females? So, right, you got a penis intervening, right? So instead of the urethra... My distance is pretty large. That little tube... <laughs> It's a you know I mean think of think of looking at the the tube of the penis as a bacteria from a bacteria's point of view. That okay. is a fucking marathon to get through the end of that from entrance to bladder where you can actually grab onto the lining of the bladder and cause an infection. So, ah, okay. So it, it's a lot uh, a lot more rare. It happens a lot less frequently in males than it does in females at any age. <clears throat> but let me give you some numbers here. So, in a systematic review of 12 studies, including data on over 400,000 males, primarily under one year of age, circumcision reduced the risk of urinary tract infection by almost 90%. It's estimated, so here's the, here's the actual prevalence, estimated that 7 to 14 of 1,000 uncircumcised males will develop a urinary tract infection during the first year of their life, compared to 1 to 2 of 1,000. So, like I said, it's pretty rare to begin with, and the reduction, although in percentage terms seems fairly large, in actual terms it's actually pretty small. You're probably decreasing the incidence of a urinary tract infection by maybe 5 to 10 in the first year of life. How serious do would you consider urinary tract infections? You know, they're easily treated, uh, assuming that all of your equipment is intact. Uh, if you don't have any problems along with the kidneys, uh, the ureter, the tube leading down to the bladder, and the valves and the bladder itself. If that's all normal, they're fairly uncomplicated. Uh, if they go untreated or if you have structural problems, they can lead to kidney infections and death. So potentially very serious, but normally quite easily treated. So a couple of thousand years ago, a lot, more, a lot more serious, yeah, than it is today. Hmm. So there's a slight reduction in urinary tract infections. Now, there's also a slight reduction in the risk of some cancers, uh, but the data is a little more complicated on this. 
um, the incidence of, say, penile cancer, squamous cell carcinoma of the penis, very rare. It occurs in less than one per 100,000 males. Uh, now, if you look at the reduction, there is a significant decrease in penile cancer. But if you take out the patients who had a history of phimosis, that's an adherence of the uh, foreskin to the glands itself. If you take out those patients, there's no difference. So it may be entirely due not to circumcision, but it may be due to that history of adherence of that foreskin to the glands of the penis. What does that mean? It's 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 when you it say adherence. Oh, I mean just stuck, but or stuck. like grows together. Yeah, yeah, it grows together, gets stuck. Oh, oh, okay. So, um, of course, you can reduce the incidence of phimosis, that's, uh, that adherence, by circumcising, but again, do the risks outweigh the benefits? So, uh, even if you include that, <clears throat> all those males with phimosis, the number of newborn circumcisions that would need to be performed to prevent a single case of penile cancer is anywhere from 900 to 322,000. And anywhere between two and 650 complications would be expected per cancer prevented. Now, that wide range uh, of data, Matt, that wide range yeah. of numbers, shows how poor our data is. If we can't narrow it down between 1,000 and 300,000, we need better data. Right. <laughs> so the data on reduction of penile cancer, not very good. Uh, there's a claim that circumcised men have a decreased incidence of sexually transmitted diseases and therefore decrease uh, that transmission to women. Most importantly would be HPV, uh, which is uh, a virus, human papillomavirus, that transmits uh, to women and can cause cervical cancer. So there is a study uh, that says that there's decreased risk of cervical cancer in partners of circumcised men. Uh, but this study was done before a vaccine was made available um, that decreases the risk of, or the those strains of HPV that have the highest risk of causing cervical cancer. So my circumcised penis gives women less cancer. Yeah, right. Hey, ladies, you're welcome. <laughs> the idea is <clears throat> that with a uh, with a foreskin provides a warm, dark, moist environment for bacteria and viruses to uh, thrive and continue to exist as opposed to the glands, right? Right. So if it's not warm and moist and dark, then uh, bacteria, viruses survive less well. So, But th those data, uh, A, were, were done before the Gardasil vaccine, so we don't know if, it, um, if giving that Gardasil vaccine uh, confounds all the data, if that reduces the risk itself enough to uh, remove that benefit given by circumcision. And uh, also condoms. If you wear a condom, it can decrease that risk as well. So there's um, that reduction in sexually transmitted diseases and HIV infection, like I said, can also be decreased by the use of condoms. I mean, if you're, if you're relying on a circumcised penis to prevent the spread of STDs or HIV, uh, I think you're barking up the wrong tree on that one. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> I have to change my approach. So overall, um, the potential advantages, those are the potential advantages. The potential disadvantages 
most commonly in babies are the risk of bleeding and the risk of infection. Again, most infections easily treated, but it can lead to what's called septicemia, which is bacteria, uh, you know, throughout the entire body in the bloodstream, um, and that's often fatal, especially in babies with poor immune systems. And bleeding can lead to uh, blood transfusions if you can't get the bleeding to stop or surgical intervention. Injury of the glands of the penis, uh, depending on the method that you use, uh, one of the complications is amputation of the glands. Oh! Uh, if you're not careful, that's a problem. Urethral complications, so um, when you irritate the uh, penis, you can cause what are called fistulas, which are passageways from the tube, that urethra, and it can actually get irritated enough that it can cause a hole in the shaft of the penis, and so you only end up peeing out of that hole instead of the urethral opening. A fistula um, in the penis. That's like the worst thing I've ever heard. It doesn't sound good, does it? Uh, you can also have um, a meatal stenosis, which is a narrowing or occlusion of the uh, meatus, which is the opening of the urethra in the, in the penis. So that's a problem as well. Other things like adhesions um, or scarring, there's uh, what's called a cicatrix, which is a uh, a scar that goes all the way around, so it's a circumferential scar, usually develops where you uh, cut the foreskin off, and that can narrow that opening and cause problems when you urinate. And uh, it can also be associated with what's called a hidden penis. <laughs> so the penis can kind of retract past that scar. I've played that game. <laughs> <laughs> Sexual dissatisfaction is also a potential complication. Oh, yeah, I've heard uh, that's one of the common complaints, isn't it? Is a reduced. Right. Um, what do you call it? Uh, I really need a fucking thesaurus or something. <laughs> reduced, reduced pleasure from sex, basically. <laughs> reduced, right? yeah. Except- so, uh, people who were circumcised, males who were circumcised as uh, infants, have no idea because they've got no frame of reference, right? Exactly. However, there was a study done on people who were uh, adult. They were circumcised as adults. So this two studies assessed self-reported sexual satisfaction among men who were uh, circumcised as adults, and there was no significant change in sexual satisfaction after the procedure and no change in sexual function. So that seems to be not borne out by the data. What they need to do is find some babies with dysphalia. And circumcise one of the people. <laughs> we won't know until we do that. You are correct. Yes. Once again, so, I have provided a solution. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, science needs to take cues from Matt Wakefield. All right. Uh, in 2012, like I said, the recommendation of the American Academy of Pediatrics, I'm going to read this to you. Uh, they concluded that, quote, the health benefits of newborn male circumcision outweigh the risks. Furthermore, the benefits of newborn male circumcision justify access to this procedure for families who choose it. Specific benefits from male circumcision were identified for the prevention of urinary tract infections, acquisition of HIV, transmission of some sexually transmitted infections, and penile cancer. Male circumcision does not appear to adversely affect penile sexual function, sensitivity, or sexual satisfaction. So this was stronger in favor of circumcision than their previous statement, which I think was fairly uh, neutral on it. So they've they've gone from 
you know, we, we don't really, we can't really recommend it uh, because of the risks are about the same as the benefits, to they actually putting a foot down and saying that the benefits outweigh the risks. I, I think we need more data on that. I would not recommend circumcision to a patient of mine uh, or parents of a patient of mine, uh, I, I think, until we have more data. Um, the uh, common argument, however, to wait until they are adults and they can make the decision themselves, the uh, risks of adult male circumcision are a lot higher in both infection, bleeding, and uh, scarring and other complications than uh, with infant male circumcision. Now, why would you do that as an adult? Is there a, The is only there... medical reason I can think of is phimosis. If you have adhered the glands of the penis ah. to the uh, foreskin, then, you know, because of hygiene or you, you can't get the glands out to urinate, uh, you have uh, pain during sex, then uh, male circumcision. That's the only male circumcision that I've actually been a part of. I think it was during my uh, urology, urology rotation. We had one adult male circumcision, and it was due to phimosis. Other than that, I can't. And, and in my experience, the most common reason for... Um, Parents to circumcise their children is that the father circumcised, and they want them to be like the dad. Yeah. I there's think no, I know what's going on, though. There's no male medical justification for it, and they, they just do it because the dad circumcised. Chuck, what's going should, on, Matt? It's just like Hollywood and the financial markets. The Jews are controlling everything. Ah. Yes. It's the Jews. <laughs> Fuck those As Jews. Always. Fuck those Jews in their foreskin-hating God, Yahweh. Oh, what do they hate about foreskins? It's like a hood that protects the tip of your penis. Like on a cold day when you wear a hat. Like a cobra. Like a cobra that flares out. <laughs> <laughs> now, that would be awesome. That would be awesome. I wonder if there's a procedure, often, <laughs> procedure to allow you to flare out your foreskin. Where's that procedure? <laughs> All right, speaking of foreskin-hating gods, let's move on to book two of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, Jaxie. Jaxie Lewis. Best segue ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, we finished book one, Matt. Book two is What Christians Believe. So this is uh, finally, finally, we get to the, the point of Mere Christianity, What the Fuck Christians Believe. I like his first sentence where he says, I might ask to tell you what Christians believe, but I'm going to begin by telling you one thing that Christians do not need to believe. Right. The first sentence of the book two, What Christians Believe. Chapter one, The Rival Conceptions of God. So, yes, what do Christians not have to believe? Oh, I wish I knew. Uh <laughs> <laughs> he said Christians don't have to believe all the other world religions are, quote, wrong all through. He says... If you are an atheist, you do have to believe that the main point in all the religions of the whole world is simply one huge mistake. When I was an atheist, I had to try to persuade myself that most of the human race have always been wrong about the question that mattered to them most. As if, as if Matt, that's impossible. Well, perish the thought. I can't think of a single example in history when the majority of humans were wrong about something. Are you sure? <laughs> It's impossible for the majority of people to be wrong. I don't have to believe religions have any point, do I? <laughs> you have to be, you know, as an arrogant atheist bastard, you have to believe that all these people are wrong about 
the thing that matters to them most. And Matt, we get this too in Mormonism, right? It's a it's a numbers game. He feels confident throwing this argument out because Christians uh, have the you know the most adherence to their religion uh, out of any religion. So he's a part of the majority. So you know how can all these people be wrong? You know I hear from my parents. How can 14 million Mormons be wrong? <laughs> it's impossible. <laughs> they did they really say that? Yes. That's a terrible. That's like the, how did one billion Chinese people be wrong? Right. Exactly. That's a clear counter argument. And yet could, I can never get Chuck to go out and have Chinese food for lunch because they're never. wrong. Their their food is shitty. But how can they be wrong? There's 1.3 billion of them now. They are all wrong. Also Indian food. <laughs> Indians are wrong, too. Although I would say that the Chinese are more right than the Indians. Okay. <laughs> I'll agree with that. As if most of the human race, you know, has never been wrong about anything before or they're incapable of being wrong. I mean, it's just fucking bullshit. So Lewis goes on to divide the humanity into, quote, the majority who believe in some kind of God or gods and the minority who do not. So there's there you have an argument by majority. Oh, good. The argument from popularity. <laughs> yes. The, what is that, ad populum? I think so. I don't speak Latin. The next division is between pantheists who think that the that God or the gods are above or beyond good and evil, and he places Hindus in this category. For some reason, I don't know. <laughs> Do Hindus believe that their gods are beyond good and evil? Uh, I don't know, because I learned about Hinduism from your podcast oh earlier. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I apologize. Um, it, it's a, it, Hinduism is like pantheist in a certain sense because they believe in the whole nature is God and it's all part of one big thing, which is as far as C.S. Lewis goes to define pantheism as about as sounds good enough, you know? Yeah, I mean, wouldn't you just say they're polytheists instead of pantheists? I would have said that. But not Lewis. Well, who, who, the, who the fuck knows what Hindus believe? Not me. Fucking Hindus. And the other, which is held by Jews, Mohammedans, and Christians, which is <laughs> that God, you know. Fuck some Mohammedan. <laughs> well, you have Jesus Christ and Christians, and you have oh. Muhammad and Mohammedans. Oh, well, what about, oh, okay, like Christian. Oh, I get it. Instead of like Jesus's. Yes. <laughs> Mohammedans. Got it. So you Christians think that God created the universe and is separate and apart from it, while pantheists believe that God kind of animates the universe like your own spirit animates you. Sure. He says, confronted with a cancer or a slum, the pantheist can say, if you could only see it from the divine point of view, you would realize this is also God, that cancer and that slum. The Christian replies, don't talk damned nonsense, <laughs> for Christianity is a fighting religion. <laughs> They're kind of bastards. Christianity's are an asshole religion. Right. Don't talk damned nonsense. I love this view of manliness that Lewis has. My God. Lewis loves manliness. Yes. Yes, yes. Later on, he describes polytheism or, or dualism as, as the next manliest option to Christianity. <laughs> right. Whatever the fuck that means. Oh, God. The Christians uh, think that God made the world, but also, quote, that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made, and that God insists, and insists very loudly, on our putting them right again, right? I, you know, how often are you kept awake, Matt, by God in your backyard yelling, fix this whole gay marriage thing? 
I insist very loudly on it. That's what he does. How come we have to fix his fuck-ups? Yeah. Why didn't God put it right himself? Oh, oh. Uh, it'll come up later. <laughs> oh. Something about free will. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, he goes on to say that um, his, Lewis's main argument against God when he was an atheist was that the universe was so cruel and unjust. But, Matt, here's where he's going to do a little Lewis turn. Oh. He says, quote, How had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? You know, I, I don't know. I, there's no answer to that, Matt. You know, maybe an evolved sense of fairness as evidenced by chimpanzees and stickleback fish. Stickleback. We talked about that. I remember. We love the stickleback. Clearly, you're comparing it against some fucking supernatural thing that we have no evidence for. Is this the problem of evil? Is that what he's going through here? Yes. So the, the very idea that we can call the universe evil means that there must be some supernatural dimension in which evil actually exists. Or some standard where a universal moral goodness actually exists. So he says, quote, Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as, if there were no light in the universe, and therefore no creatures with eyes, <laughs> we should never know it was dark. Dark would be a word without meaning. Zing. <laughs> He's got you there. Just like that. So, uh... <laughs> Chuck, how can we know a sandwich has no mayonnaise? Unless we know about mayonnaise. Unless we know what mayonnaise is. Oh, my God. He just doesn't understand the difference between our imposing meaning on things and uh, discovering aspects of the world around us. You imagine saying, oh, it's dark out there. I don't know what you mean. I have no eyeballs. <laughs> Chapter 2, The Invasion. So Lewis thinks atheism is too simple. And he also thinks it's too simple what he calls Christianity and water. The view which simply says there is a good God in heaven and everything is all right, leaving out all the difficult and terrible doctrines about sin and hell and the devil and the redemption. Both these are boys' philosophies. But, you know, a fucking two people talking to a... a walking snake with legs holding a conversation about fucking fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's that's not a boy's philosophy. That's fucking manly religion. I, I'm not sure if I should be insulted or feel insulted for boys. <laughs> <laughs> I am insulted for both. Isn't he just doing the same thing as what he calls Christianity and water in the first chapter of the book? He just ignores all the hard questions and the difficult things for discussions. Yeah, I don't want to talk about deep theology. Every time he, he gets into there, he just ducks and evades. Oh, it's someone else's job. I'm just talking about the basic shit. But then, yeah, he says athe atheism and Christianity and water are boys' philosophies. You think he would uh, accept criticism from uh, more sophisticated theologians than him who would scoff at his work? Do they? Probably not. Probably not. It's great for the masses. Uh, so he says, you know, it's no good for asking for a simple religion. Then shouldn't he fucking believe in Hinduism? That's <laughs> the most complicated religion there is. After all, real things are not simple. I would say, except for C.S. Lewis, he seems pretty simple. <laughs> oh, low blow. Au contraire, I have a counter-argument. Oh, okay. Reality, in fact, is usually something you could not have guessed. That is one of the reasons I believe Christianity is a religion you could not have guessed. 
if it offered up just the kind of universe we had always expected, I should feel we were making it up. But, in fact, it is not the sort of thing anyone would have made up. Oh, fuck yourself! <laughs> no one ever expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> <laughs> How the fuck does he know what a first century Jew would or would not have made up? I mean, there were over, according to Richard Carrier, over 30 Jewish sects who all believed in wildly different things uh, and, and made up shit all the time. Are you telling me that that because Hinduism is really complicated and doesn't seem like something that someone would make up, that it's true. Fuck you. See, now you can understand why all of his books <laughs> are copied from the Bible, God. essentially. He, he can't a, make stuff up. He's a terrible imagination, that's why. You, you can't guess this shit. Uh, so Lewis's problem, as he sees it, is that the universe has a lot of stuff that is, quote, obviously bad and apparently meaningless but that it also contains creatures like us who see that it is bad and meaningless. So that problem needs to be explained. He says there are only two views that face all the facts. One is Christianity, and the other is dualism, the belief that there are two equal and independent powers at the back of everything, one of them good and the other bad, and this universe is a battlefield in which they fight out an endless war. I personally think that next to Christianity, dualism is the manliest and most sensible creed on the market. <laughs> Is that a good thing? I, I, I don't know. I don't know, but he says say about it that it has just the queer twist about it that real things have. Just that queer twist. He's saying Christianity is gay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what that means. He goes on to explain that dualism has a problem. He's repeating himself a bit here, but um, you got to remember that mere Christianity was a series of wartime lectures. Not He didn't sit down and, and write it all at once. So he says, either we say one power is good and the other bad simply based on preference, in which case the terms are meaningless, or we say that one is right and the other is wrong. But in this case, you have that third thing again that you're comparing stuff to. So you, if you're saying that one's right and the other wrong, then you're comparing them to an independent standard. And that standard then is above and beyond them, and that should be called God and not the two independent powers. So dualism can suck it. Suck it, Zoroastrian this. Well, it is manly. So. <laughs> They've got that anyway. At least you're manly. Lewis also argues, and this is contrary to the position he took with Nazi morality and the universal moral standard in his previous chapter, that no one is bad for be the sake of being bad. Now, somehow, <laughs> the Nazis, in the previous chapter, they, they knew that they were being bad and they were violating the moral standard, but they were bad anyway. He says... So no one's bad for the sake of being bad. They, they either derive pleasure from you know, being cruel to people, like a sadist, right. or they seek good things using bad methods. So those good things, however, are dependent on the good power, right? So the bad power is not independent of the good power, but dependent on it. So to be bad, quote, to be bad, he must exist and have intelligence and will. But existence, intelligence, and will are, are in themselves good. Again, you know, Why? Why is intelligence good? Why is existence good? What does that even mean to say existence is good? That's the problem with the ontological argument, right? It's better to exist than not to exist. Well, the fucking you either do or you don't. It's not good, better, or worse. He's just saying things he values. So therefore, um, the bad one must be getting these good things from the good power. Why? Why? Why must he? So even to be bad, he must borrow or steal from his opponent. 
And do you now begin to see why Christianity has always said that the devil is a fallen angel? This is not a mere story for children, Matt. Ah. It is a real recognition of the fact that evil is a parasite, not an original thing. So it's not a, it's not a story for children like atheism or that other fucking boy philosophy, Christianity and water. This is a manly recognition of the fact that evil is a parasite. Okay. Now I get it. Yeah, not not because there was an adversary already present in the Old Testament, right? That, that Satan means adversary or accuser. And then the Jews were exposed to dualism in the form of Zoroastrianism when they were carried off in captivity to Babylon. And then they adopted some of their beliefs through cultural diffusion. No, 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 no. It was clearly through a real recognition that uh, evil's a parasite. That's much more likely. So is he eliminating dualism? Uh, yes, unfortunately, because dualism, he says, reduces to monism. Is that something to do with sex? <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping. The the one, monotheism. Oh. Um, so he says, Christianity agrees with dualism that this universe is at war, but does not think this is a war between independent powers. It thinks it is a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. You know, which makes perfect sense when uh, the force opposed to the rebel is omnipotent and all-powerful. Enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. Christianity is a story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Oh my god, this is a terrible analogy. Why in the fuck does a rightful king land in disguise, Matt? <laughs> Especially if he's going to call us all to take part in a campaign for him. Why the fuck would he disguise himself? Because otherwise you would expect that. <laughs> and Christianity is something you cannot expect. Why does he need us when he can just snap his finger and destroy the opposition? Why would you even engage in a campaign of sabotage when he has the power to end the occupation at any fucking time? Why? I don't know. Stop yelling at me. <laughs> Lewis ends the chapter by reaffirming that, yes, he believes in a literal devil, but he doesn't know if he has hoofs or horns. So, Matt, he's totally reasonable. Yes, Satan exists, but I don't know if he has hoofs or horns. Well, I'm sorry. He doesn't want to sound like a complete nutbag. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis does not know that that horse left the barn many chapters ago. <laughs> yeah, he wants to appear reasonable. I don't know. He might have hoofs or horns. I don't know. I can't say that for sure. He says, quote, if anybody really wants to know him better, I would say to that person, don't worry. If you really want to, you will. Whether you like <laughs> it when you do is another question. Ooh. <laughs> Burn. Nasty. Shall we move on to Chapter 3, The Shocking Alternative? Oh, I thought this was the shocker alternative. <laughs> I thought I, we were getting to manly sex acts. I can say <laughs> I was pretty shocked by this chapter. Well, it shocked me. He says, so Christians believe that an evil power has made himself for the present the prince of this world. But that presents a problem, Matt. Is this state of affairs in accordance with God's will or not? If it is, he is a strange god. If it is not, how can anything happen contrary to the will of a being with absolute power? Finally, he's going to answer the question I've had the entire fucking book. Which is? Free will. Oh. 
That's his theodicy. That's Lewis's theodicy. His answer to the problem of evil. Uh, fucking free will. Not original, by any means. It just fucking trots out free will, once again. So he gives an example of a mother who's instructed her children to keep their room tidy, but then she comes home and finds it messy. Now, this messiness is not in accordance with the mother's will, but at the same time, it is a result of her will in allowing the children the freedom to choose. He says, quote, It is probably the same in the universe. Just, just to say Matt is a mother and her kids. God created the things which had free will. That means that creatures can either go wrong or right. Some people think they can imagine a creature which was free but had no possibility of going wrong. I cannot. If a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. Well, again, we run into C.S. Lewis's complete and utter lack of fucking imagination. <laughs> Lewis uh, conveniently forgets the central fucking figure of his own religion, Jesus. Did Jesus have free will? Yes. Did he have a possibility of going wrong? I don't think so. He no. was God. <laughs> You know, was he a robot, or did he always freely choose the good? And if Jesus can always freely choose the good, why can't the fucking rest of us? Remember, because. Jesus was fully human, Matt, yeah. as well as being fully divine. So why not? Why could that not be a state of affair for other humans? Why didn't, G, why didn't God just create a bunch of people who always freely chose the good? Then it would be meaningless. Yeah, I guess God gets more pleasure out of people who choose the good most of the time, but then it allows God to throw a bunch of people in hellfire for eternity. Exactly. You got punishing people as part of the fun yes. of playing with your creation. You can't. You can't deprive God of that pleasure. <laughs> no. So you could say I'm serving God at times when I. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which would be following His will. Lewis says, a world of automata, of creatures that work like machines, would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth is mere milk and water. And for that, they must be free. Whenever Lewis wants to insult something, he just adds the phrase, and water. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> Mere milk and water. Lewis is uh, not a big fan of water, apparently. So, the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him. I, so, it's voluntary. What if I choose wrong? Yeah, well, then you're fucked for eternity. And you'll be in an eternal hellfire and damnation and pain. But, you know, free will's worth it. Yeah, if there's one thing I'm taking away from Lewis's argument, is that when my daughter doesn't clean her room, I'm supposed to throw her in the fireplace. Yes, exactly. Yes, that's perfectly reasonable. But take her out and heal her up and then throw her back in again for the rest of her fucking life. Right. Now, Matt, did you notice here, and this is a problem that Christians fall into all the time. C.S. Lewis, in this specific instance, apparently knows the exact mind of God. How does he claim to know any of this? How does he know that the happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him? What special access does Lewis have that the rest of us don't? How is he so certain? How does Lewis know we're not automata? And, and why does Lewis think God wouldn't be happy with, with automata? How, how does Lewis know what happiness God designs for his higher creatures? I mean, this, is, this knowledge that Lewis has is especially grating when we hear... A certainty for stuff like this shit, which no one can verify or falsify. 
but we're constantly told that God works in mysterious ways for other cases that they can't think up something for. Why is the difference? What? What? Why? Why, Matt? Answer me! God damn it, I don't know! <laughs> Why are you always thinking on me? It really irritates me. And um, you'll, you'll notice instances where Lewis is totally fucking certain about this shit, and then he had no fucking idea in others. And, he, and, and Lewis never notices it himself. That's because there are a series of lectures, and he doesn't pay attention to the ones he gave before. Yeah, yeah. Lewis continues to say that, of course God knew the risk of free will, but apparently thought it was worth the risk. We may disagree with him on that score, but, quote, there is a difficulty about disagreeing with God. He is the source from which all your reasoning power comes. You could not be right and he wrong any more than a stream can rise higher than its own source. When you are arguing against him, you are arguing against the very power that makes you able to argue at all. You see a problem with that line of reasoning? Not at all. None. It's ironclad. <laughs> hey, Lewis, I don't know about you, but I never argue against God. I only argue against human beings' interpretation of their concept of God, and that's certainly fucking fallible. The fact that, that this distinction entirely escapes Lewis, one of the greatest apologi- apologists of the 20th century, is, is just fucking laughable. They, they, he can trot out that you can't disagree with God because God's always going to be right when no one ever has any fucking direct access to God at all. It's just fucking laughable to me. What about the Pope? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The, the Pope <laughs> always comes out and says, yeah, I was just chatting with Jesus. And uh, here's what he says. Oh, wait. No, the president of the LDS Church. He's got the direct line. Do you know that under oath, during the Reed Smoot hearings, Matt, Joseph F. Smith was asked directly if he had ever seen Jesus or talked to God, and he said in answer, under oath, I never have. I think I'm susceptible to impressions um, from God, uh, just like uh, any other good religious person. But no, I've never talked face-to-face with Jesus or God. What? Really? Yeah. Under he, oath. Oh, he only saw he only saw the angel, right? He only saw Moroni? No, this is Joseph F. Smith. We're talking about Reed Smoot hearings. This is okay. in the early 1900s. Joseph fucking Smith. Okay. Yeah, Joseph Sorry. fucking Smith. Um, so I thought, you know, to be an apostle, you had to have like a personal relationship with Jesus and have him appear to you and you're a personal witness of Christ. But under oath, apparently that's not the case. So all we have are, are people telling us that they talk to God or, you know, relaying a message. You never actually see God face to face. And then he fucking hides really well. Well, Lewis found him. <laughs> yeah, clearly Lewis is having conversations directly with fucking God. Hey, Lewis, why don't you ask whether Satan has hoofs or horns or not? Dipshit. Lewis then tells us exactly where Satan went wrong. Uh, and, and that was in putting himself before God. Because God apparently is a, a prideful asshole. And you can't have anyone in front of him. Uh, Satan also encouraged our remote ancestors. So here Lewis actually believes in a fucking literal Adam and Eve and a literal fucking walking snake and a literal fall caused by eating some fucking fruit. See, now, do you think do you think he's would be like a young earth creationist? Because he doesn't sound like one in some in the conclusion. I don't think he'd be a young earth creationist because I think he accepts evolution. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, th- he, I think he'd be an old earth creationist. Ah, okay. So uh, with an Adam and Eve. So, yeah, yeah. Whatever happened, it's got an Adam and Eve that that literally happened. And no matter how old the Earth is or whatever happened with evolution, you have a literal Adam and Eve. 
and a literal fucking talking snake. So um, Satan encouraged our remote ancestors to do the same, put themselves before God, right? So they could set themselves up as their own masters and, quote, invent some sort of happiness outside of God. Lewis says, Matt, that's not possible, right? God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it's just no good asking God to make us happy without bothering about religion. So apparently we're all God-fueled. We, we run on God. That's going to be my energy drink. I'm going to make that. <laughs> Yahweh. Jesus juice. <laughs> Again, here. Lewis gives us no reason to believe him here. He just fucking, by fiat, declares that that's the truth. Makes a series of fucking naked assertions, right, as if doing that makes it true. And uh, the certainty with which he makes these fucking ridiculous... We fucking run on God in the face of absolutely no supporting evidence doesn't seem to bother him at all. Unbelievable to me. Lewis says God did three things to help us. Number one, he left us a sense of right and wrong. That, That tertium quid, that sense of universal morality. Number two, he sent the human race good dreams, which are, quote, those queer stories scattered all through the heathen religions about a god who dies and comes to life again, and by his death has somehow given new life to men. What? What's with the queer? They love that word. He loves that word. Yes, um, he's enamored by uh, the word queer, um, which, uh, you know, I'm sure in the 40s just meant strange. Still, it's funny to me today. Ha ah. Because <laughs> I'm immature. So this is how this is how Lewis gets around because he's he's uh, should be well versed in in all these stories because he he was in the humanities right he wasn't in the sciences Lewis was in the humanities so he studied ancient Greek and Rome and knew all these stories this is how you know so so can you imagine that God is up there he doesn't fucking appear to people he sends them weird fucking dreams about Dionysus you know getting slaughtered and then rising again and Osiris getting killed by this other dude, uh, Seth, and, and being pieced back together by ISIS and being resurrected. So so then, I guess, sending these people shit in code? <laughs> yeah. That way you'll be prepared when he comes. Yeah. Instead of, you know, what happened, which is people, you know, ended up believing in all that shit. Uh, and then them saying, well, wait, this shit came first. These queer dreams came first. Uh, and this is just a pale copy of these dreams that we had before. I mean, it seems to me like the least effective fucking thing you could ever do as an omnipotent being. Your your ability to communicate is fucking horrible. This is what you do. Instead of appearing to Pharaoh and saying, hey, Horus is not a real god. Uh, it's me, Yahweh. Yo, here, right here. Follow the Jews. He just sends them queer dreams and stories. Well, the whole of Christianity is, is, is like a shell game. He just sort of, he's trying to convince you. But uh, he can't really tell you, because that's too obvious, Chuck. Yeah, well, maybe that's what Paul meant in Second Thessalonians when he said God would send strong delusion. Ha ha! <laughs> Fuckers! Gotcha! Gotcha! <laughs> just kidding about that Horace shit. Well, those people knew that all that was just mythology anyway. Right, yeah. They never actually believed in it. No. Uh, number three... He selected one particular people and spent several centuries hammering into their heads the sort of God he was, that there was only one of him, and that he cared about right conduct. Those people were the Jews, and the Old Testament gives an account of the hammering process. So, thanks for pointing that one out. 
<laughs> now I understand the Old Testament. Oh, 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 oh the Jews. Oh, I get you. I got you. Um, but, Matt, here's an example uh, uh, from the Old Testament about how concerned God is about right conduct. First uh, Samuel 15. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message of the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites uh, for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Even that, the donkeys? <laughs> that is how concerned God is about right conduct. Fucking kill the babies. Not the donkeys. Because apparently the babies, the cattle, the sheep, the donkeys waylaid the fucking Israelites. They're responsible. I'm thinking that if I was given that order, I might not kill all the donkeys and just keep a couple for myself. Well, Matt, that, would, that would be okay, I think. That is exactly what Saul did, starting from verse 7. What? Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agog, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all the people... All his people he totally destroyed with a sword. But Saul and the army spared Agog and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. <clears throat> so God's pissed off that he didn't kill all the camels and donkeys. God's got regrets. He fucked up. God chose the wrong fucking person. <laughs> Wait, didn't God say waste not, want not? Isn't that God? <laughs> I'm sure that's in the Old Testament somewhere. Somewhere. Oh, my God. So then then comes the real shock, Matt. Among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he has always existed. He says he is coming to judge the world at the end of time. <laughs> this you is remember? the most- Yes. <laughs> you remember when Lewis was talking about boys' philosophies? I mean, this is fucking rich. So not only does he believe in a literal Satan, Adam, and Eve, a talking snake, tree of the fruit of good, knowledge of good and evil, now he talks about the Gospels as if they were a fucking exact transcript of Jesus' words, written at the time, instead of a story written at least 40 to 60 years after by four different anonymous sources. He doesn't fucking, he hasn't studied this shit at all. All this stuff is obvious and has been obvious for a couple hundred years certainly obvious in the 1940s when Lewis was doing this shit. But he seems blissfully unaware of any of this stuff. Oh yeah, Jesus claimed all this stuff. Claimed every single bit of it. All of that is just direct fucking words of Jesus. Boy's philosophy. Fuck you. (laughs) That leads us into Lewis's complaint about people who say they like the moral teachings of Jesus, but don't accept his claim to be God. Did you like this part? This is the trilemma, I guess. Oh yeah, this is the best part. So, with the things Jesus said, he is either, quote, a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. Has Lewis never heard of hypocrisy? (laughs) Well, Matt, uh, according to the documents that we have in the New Testament, the Gospels, Jesus didn't appear to be a hypocrite. Oh. He didn't appear to be a poached egg, or crazy dude, or a liar. So, therefore... He, you were left with the unpleasant reality that he must have had to have been God. I would put him on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg. <laughs> but apparently you can't. I would say that 
Who knows what the fuck Jesus said, if he ever claimed to be God. We don't have Jesus claiming to be God uh, until, I think, John, right? He doesn't claim to be God in uh, Mark, certainly. He just claims to be Messiah. I don't think we got it in Matthew or Luke. Uh, I think you have to wait until John, the latest of the Gospels, before you even have uh, Jesus claiming to be even coexistent with God. So, is that apparently reliable? So now we're talking probably 60 to 70 years after Jesus, if he ever did walk the earth, got crucified. So now you have 60 to 70 years of a game of telephone, if this even you know reaches back. Why isn't it in Mark or Matthew or Luke? Why don't we have Jesus going around like he does in John, creating all these miracles and feeding the, the fucking people specifically because he's God, specifically to prove that he's God or the Messiah? Why do we have in, Ma- in Mark him hiding all this shit and telling people not to say to anyone that he's the Messiah, as opposed to John, where he says, I do this specifically so that you may believe. So, you know, that contradiction there says that these things aren't reliable. And if you're going to trust anything, you have to trust the earliest source, which is Mark, where he doesn't say anything like, I'm God. So again, Lewis, go fuck yourself. And that's a good place to stop. Excellent. We'll pick this up with Chapter 4, The Perfect Penitent, and Chapter 5, The Practical Conclusion, next time. I can't wait.